Welcome to the Portland City Church Podcast. We are a brand new church in the city of Portland, Oregon. Here you'll find all of our weekly messages, so make sure to subscribe and turn on your notifications to stay updated. The study you are about to listen to is from our series on 1 Corinthians called Lost Church. If you're encouraged by this message, we would love to hear about it. Feel free to reach out to us on social media or through our website, portlandcitychurch.org. We are a growing community of believers, so if you live near Portland, we would love to visit us in person at our Sunday morning gathering. Hope to see you there. God bless. Talking about really what the Bible has to say about really order in the church. Um, you know, chapter in First Corinthians, you get into chapter seven, it's about marriage. Then you get into chapter eight, nine, and ten. Eight, nine, and ten in First Corinthians were about what? They were about Christian living. And we went in detail, we talked about how we talked about how Christian liberty, what it is really, it's a Christian freedom. You know, we talked about how in Christ, as a believer, as a Christian, we have great freedom in Christ. There's freedom to be able to, uh, you know, that freedom is essential in order to have a relationship with God. You know, there's no rules and, and, and regulations to follow. We don't wake up in the morning and go to the fridge and say, okay, I got my Christian checklist and I got to do all these things today. The Bible says that we have great freedom in Christ. There's liberty, there's freedom in Christ. And that freedom is essential. Why? Because if you live in a relationship with God that's based on rules and it's based on checklists and it's based on, well, I have to do all these things or, well, I don't have to do all these things, um, that relationship with God can't grow. Why? Because the relationship with God is fellowship. And imagine if you had a friendship with somebody or you had a relationship with somebody and every like the second you meet that person, you're like, hi, I want to be friends, but here's my checklist. And you have to make sure that you do all these things. And, and if you do these things, then we can, we can have a, 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 an ongoing relationship. And God doesn't operate like that. There's tremendous freedom, right? We give our lives to Christ. We say, God, I want you in my life. I want to follow you. I want to have a relationship with you. And then he gives us that freedom. But with that freedom, we saw that there's warnings. And there's different warnings that the Bible gives us about that. We saw that, man, with that freedom comes the, the danger of not only, because the Bible says that all things are lawful, but not all things are what? Edify. There's some things that are not helpful spiritually. There's some things that will destroy your walk with God. The Bible says that we can use liberty. There's that danger to use liberty as a cloak for vice. What he's saying is that freedom, well, I'm free in Christ, so I can do whatever I want. And how it's dangerous because sometimes that freedom, it can become a cloak for violence. And then we saw that one of the other dangers of Christian liberty and why sometimes people can go crazy with it is Christian liberty. There's that danger of causing someone to stumble. And Paul talked about how you had people that were eating meat that was offered to idols. And Paul says what? He says, hey, he says, an idol is nothing. He goes, and if you're going to eat meat that's offered to an idol, it doesn't mean anything either. There's nothing there. But someone who maybe came from a background of idol worship, they see you eating meat, and what happens? They're like, oh, he's going to get stumbled by it. And so he says there's that danger there. So with that Christian freedom, listen, Christian freedom is not regulated by rules, right? Tell me this that. So then it, what is the freedom? Christian liberty is regulated by one. 
And we use that illustration of if you were to give a kid and you were to say, hey, you know, go play in the backyard, have fun, do your thing. But just be careful. Don't go over the fence. Why? Because if you go over the fence, what happens? There's a neighbor has a dog. There's a good chance you're going to get picked. Right? There's that freedom and liberty as a warning. And as we move through chapters 8, 9, and 10, we saw that he went in depth on Christian liberty. And now he comes to chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. And chapter 11, he starts to talk about order in the church. And how the church isn't to be a free for all. The church isn't to be crazy. The church is to be a place where there's order. And immediately when we think of order, understand like people come from all different backgrounds of church, right? There's some people that come from a background of the church where it's very strict. There's some people that come from a background of church where they've grown up and all their life they've been taught that they have to wear suits. So they go to church, they go to church wearing suits. There's some people that have been raised in the tradition of church where music is bad. So you go to that church and they sing hymns. And there's different churches. There's some people that were raised in the tradition of church where you go in and people are doing laps around the room during worship, right? And you see different things like that. And the different people have been raised in different traditions. But that's not so much what he's talking about here. He's going to bring some of that in order. But the idea is, is this, is that the Bible says that there needs to be order in the church, that there needs to be order. There needs to be a way things are done. Why? Because listen, when you have a church that is in disorder, when you have a church that is not done how God would have it be and whether that's in the worship, that maybe the gifts of the Spirit are being exercised crazy. Maybe there's things going on that's going to be going on when there's disorder in the church, it affects the spiritual temperature of the church. And the church needs to be a place where God can work with people. And the church needs to be a place asking people to prayer, fellowship, relationship. That is what the church is designed to be. And when there's disorder in the church, what happens is, is it creates a place where God can no longer work. And when there's no longer an encounter with God that's taking place with people. See, order doesn't mean boredom. It's just it mean boredom. And there needs to be that flexibility to the Holy Spirit, that openness to the Spirit, that leading of the Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But First Thessalonians 5.19 says what it says, don't quench the spirit. And there shouldn't be disorder in the church. Why? Because disorder in the church, it quenches the spirit of God. And there's so many churches that you go to and you get kind of these interesting practices. You get these kind of weird practices that are going on. And what does it do? Man, it quenches the spirit. The Spirit of God works sometimes so naturally and very just real. That's one of the things I like, man. Have you ever been, uh, maybe you were talking to someone and it was like as they were talking, God was speaking to you. And it wasn't like they just stopped and said, hey, I have a word for you. Like, just say it to the Lord. It was just almost, yeah, it's almost just like what? It's just very natural. And that's because the Spirit of God works naturally. But he also works supernaturally as well. He works naturally, he works supernaturally. But listen, when the Spirit of God is working, what we do not want to do is quench the Holy Spirit. We don't want to stop that work. And we can do that in our lives. 
And as God started to work in your life, you feel like God is speaking to you. You feel like God is beginning to work, and we can breathe the work of the Holy Spirit. We can quench that work in our life. Man, often what God does, and I, and I love it how Ch- Pastor Chuck used to say, he's always this. He used to say, when you see where God is working, that's where you want to jump in. Why? Because God is working, and sometimes in our lives, if he's not working on the outside, many times he's working on the inside, he's working in our heart. And many times God is working underneath the person. He's doing that work kind of like a tree. Before it grows upward, what does that have to do? It's a lot of roots downward that are taking place. And it's that same thing with us. And when we see the work of God taking place in our life, the last thing we want to do is quench that work. And that can happen so many ways. And one of the things God does oftentimes is God works sometimes more through trials than he does through anything else. You go through a trial, you go through a hardship, and our immediate response is to do what? It's like we want to get out of that situation. We're like, God, I don't want to go through this trial. I don't want to go through this hardship. God, I don't want to go through this situation. I don't want to go through this time of discipline, Lord. I want to get out. I want to sidestep it. I want to get away from it. And yet, what does the Bible say? And don't quench the spirit. You don't want to quench the work of God in your life. And sometimes, listen, sometimes the work that God does not mold in you. It is painful. It is painful. Oh man, it's necessary. Why did he say it's Often what he does is he proves it so that it what? It bears more. That's hard. When God brings trials into our life, when God puts us in positions where we're having to trust him by faith, it can be very hard. But man, those things and those times, they're what they're necessary. And so we don't want to quench the spirit in our lives, and we don't want to quench the spirit listening in the church. Notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 11. He talks about, in the first part of he talked about last week, uh, really looking at a woman in the church. And they were having a situation at that time that was kind of a cultural situation dealing with women. And the big issue was this. What? What was the big issue? The big issue was that women were going into church not having their heads covered. Right? You don't see that today. Definitely. Right? We don't come into church and be like, oh my gosh, that she, she doesn't have anything on her head like you know, we don't do that. That was a cultural situation that was happening. But we talked about kind of the lesson behind that. And there's some stuff in the Bible that when we look at the Bible, sometimes you can be like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, what's he talking about there? And when you look at it, you want to always look at what is the culture, what's going on there. And then you say, what's the principle I can pull from that? What's the lesson that I can learn from? And the lesson in that passage was what? It was, it was really a lesson of modesty. Because when you look at that, in that culture, for a woman to have her head uncovered, or for a woman to not be wearing like a veil over her head, or for a woman to have her head shaved, what it meant was, is it meant that she was putting it out there that she was available. It meant literally that she was a prostitute. And so Paul's saying, he's saying, hey, he's saying, you have some women in the church that are saying, well, I'm free in Christ. I don't need to wear that veil. But he's saying what? He's saying that li- you have that liberty, he says, but in the church, he goes, you're, you're, he goes, you're setting an example that shouldn't be there. 
She said, so when you come into church, hey, wear that. And we talked about how modesty is okay. Why? Because the Bible puts value not on a woman's appearance. The Bible puts value on a woman's character. And we talked about how that's the most important thing. And how our culture has put so much emphasis on what? Our culture has put so much emphasis on how a woman looks. And you have to look a certain way to feel good about yourself. And you see social media, right? Social media, it's, it's, I mean, I don't want to say it's a lie. <laughs> but in some ways, it's a lie, right? You're never going to look like that influence. Man, you're never going to feel and have that type of life that's portrayed. And when you look at it, the truth is, is you don't have to. Why? Because the Bible adds value to you. And the Bible, the whole message of the Bible is that, is that a woman is known by her character. And it's not her appearance. But it's her character that matters. It's her character that adds value. And then we went on and we looked now and he's getting into this portion of scripture where he's going to talk about divisions in the church, problems that are happening with division. And he's also going to talk about communion. And as we get into it, let's go ahead and start reading in 1 Corinthians 11 chapter, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. I almost said 1 Corinthians 11 chapter 17, but that wouldn't have been correct. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. (coughs) And it says this. It says, now in giving these instructions, he says, I do not praise you, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. There must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So he talks about how when they were coming together as a church, how there was division there. There was problems. And we learned about this in previous weeks, how the church in Corinth, they were battling what? They were battling division. And what is a division? A division is a split, it's a gap between an individual or between a group of people. That's what a division is. It means that people are no longer in unity. And that can happen in a marriage, that can happen in a family, that can happen between family members. Now there's some family members that go years without talking to each other. Why? Because there's problems between them, there's division between them. And unity is so, so, so important. It's interesting, one of Jesus' final things he did was he prayed. Before he left this earth, before he went to the cross, he prayed. And one of the things that he prayed, he said this, he said, Father, he said, I do not pray for these alone. He's praying for his disciples. He says, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. He says, I pray that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, 
and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. You see, a united church is a problem for the enemy. Man, a united church is a problem for the enemy. God desires that the church will be united. Jesus' last prayer was what? God, I pray for my disciples. I pray that you keep them one. I pray that they would be united. I pray that they would be together. I pray that there wouldn't be schisms, that there wouldn't be divisions, that there wouldn't be breaks between them. I think one of the greatest tragedies of the COVID pandemic was what? Was how divided the church became. It's funny, we were down at a conference last week and we got to hear from different pastors from all over the country. And one of the things that they kept saying was they said that when COVID was happening, their churches were split on entirely different levels. You had some people, one pastor was saying, he's like, listen, he's like, we reopened the church. He's like, and we had people that were mad that we had to wear masks. <coughs> he said, and then we had people mad that we didn't have to wear masks. He said, we had people that were just on different sides of the fences. And then COVID, the church was so divided. Now the church was split on everything from politics to COVID, to the handling of COVID. You have some people who were on one end of the spectrum. Some people were on the other end of the spectrum. For me personally, I've always tried to just balance things out. I think that it's important to have balance because it's not about taking sides. It's not about picking and choosing. It's really about looking at the scriptures and saying, God, what do you want us to do? And then making the focus not on picking a side, but making the focus on reaching as many people as possible. While staying true to your convictions and what the Bible says. And that's what it's about. You know, when Jesus said that prayer, what did he say? He said, I pray that they would be one wise so that the world may believe that you sent me. See, what does unity do in the church when the church is together? That it enhances our witness. Could you imagine what would have happened if during the whole pandemic, when you had the whole world was divided on so many things, can you imagine if the church would have been united together? Could you imagine the impact that the church would have? Can you imagine the witness? Could you imagine the people that would have gotten saved? Man. Yeah, united church is a problem for the enemy. And that's why Jesus was so adamant about the church being one. And that is why Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he's saying, look, he's saying, you guys, you're coming together in church and you're all split up. You're all in different divisions. You're all, you have this faction over here. You have this group of people over here. And this person has beef with this person. And it's just one big, kind of almost like one big high school. <laughs> this person has fun with this person. And well, these people don't hang out with these people. Well, you know, that we have that group over there. I remember in my school, it was like that. I'm sure it was like that in your guys' school, too. Yeah, certain people hung out by this tree. Certain people hung out by that tree. Right? Certain people hung out, you know, by the quad. You know, it was just, it was just weird. <laughs> you know? And then you always have that group of kids that are playing Pokemon cards, right? In the, in the far side of the quad or by the lockers. Like, it's just, they were so split up. You know, I have by the lockers. You walk by, you're like, oh, I'm playing Pokemon card. That's, that's pretty dope. 
And so you had, but that problem was what? It was taking place in the church. Because you had a church that was so split. There were so many factions. It was so divided. And Paul is writing to them and he's saying what? He's saying when you come together, he's saying there's a problem. He's saying you guys are split. There's all these divisions. There's all these problems. And there's something about disunity, listen, that hurts our witness. I'm going to tell you something. Listen, unity is the greatest demonstration of love. Man, unity and being one with someone is the greatest demonstration of love. Man, being able to be united together is the greatest demonstration of love to what? To the world. And it shows, hey, these people are not bickering. These people are not fighting. These people are not coming at each other. These people are not trying to undercut each other. There's that unity there. And what does it do? It sends a big, giant message of the love of Christ and what he's done in and through our lives. Man, there's that unity there. And where do divisions come from? And what causes divisions? Where do they come from? Listen, divisions... They are rooted in the flesh. They are rooted 110% in the flesh. This isn't just large scale in a church. Listen, this can happen between a family. It can happen between family members. It can happen between friends. Now there's friends that get divided. It can happen in a marriage. The husband and the wife become divided. A lot of times there can be that inability to forgive. I think that's one of the biggest reasons why divisions happen is there's the inability to forgive. And it may be you in a situation where maybe you haven't talked to your mom or you haven't talked to a family member for a long time. And the reason why is what? The reason why is you're not able to forgive and move past what happened. Man, the inability to forgive will cause you to be divided. But I think the greatest cause for division, the greatest reason why divisions happen, listen, it is the inability to love. That is the greatest reason why divisions happen. It is the inability to love. First Peter 4 verse 8 says what? It says, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover what? A multitude of sins. Man, love covers a multitude of sins. You know, when you love someone, when you love one another, having that ability to love, and it's hard to love. And it's hard to love people. It's hard to love people. And and Jesus talked so much about love, right? He said what? He said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Love those who persecute you. Man, treat them well. Love, 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 love. Love one another. And yet love is so hard. Listen, it is nearly impossible without a relationship with God. But when we love, what does it do? It covers a multitude of sins. When you love someone, what does it do? Listen, you don't look at that person and say, well, they did this against me. I cannot believe that. Well, they did that. I can't, I still, I just can't, I can't let that go. And man, I've been there. I've been in situations with family members where I look and I'm like, man, I just don't know if I can let this go. 
I don't know if I can move past this. I don't know if I can forgive this. I don't know if I can love past that. But man, the inability to love, listen, it will cause divisions. But listen, true love, the love that only comes from God. And the love that God gives you when you're filled with his Holy Spirit, when you're walking with him, when you have a relationship with him, that love does what? That love, listen, it covers a multitude of sins. And you'll be able to look past what someone's done to you. You'll be able to look past what someone is doing and do what? And you're able to love them. That love covers a multitude of sins. Another cause for divisions are what? They're disagreements. How many times you disagree with someone on something and what happens? That disagreement can get heated. There's a story of Paul the Apostle, very familiar with this. He was, he was serving with this other guy named Barnabas and they were going on missions trips and they took one of Barnabas's nephews one time and his name was John Mark. And so it was Paul, it was Barnabas. Barnabas comes to Paul and says, hey, Paul, I want to take my nephew on this missions trip. I think it'll be great. He really wants to serve God. Let's take him. So they take John Mark on this missions trip. We don't know exactly what happened. It could have been that John Mark got a little homesick. It could have been that maybe John Mark got a little intimidated. Why? Because when Paul and Barnabas were going and sharing the gospel, wherever they would go, they would get opposition. And so as they were going, it could have been that John Mark saw them getting persecuted and said, I'm out, dude. I don't want no part of that. So John Mark left. They go back and they're getting ready to go on another missions trip. And Barnabas comes to Paul and says, hey, Paul, I want to bring John Mark. I want to bring my nephew with me. And Paul's like, no, he's like, we're not going to we're not going to we're not going to do round two of this. He said, last time when we were on the missions trip, he said, John left. He said, we're not going to take him on this trip. And the Bible says that the division, it got so heated to the point that Paul and Barnabas were literally top of the lungs yelling at each other. So heated. And what did that disagreement do? That disagreement, it led to a division. It's been said before that you see that Paul... He ended up continuing and he ended up taking Silas with him and going on a missions trip. And then you see what you see that Barnabas, he ended up going the other way. And it's been said before that he went straight off the pages of the Bible. You don't see his story anymore. And when you look at disagreements, sometimes disagreements can be heated. Sometimes disagreements can be heated. And it's so important, listen, being able to walk in agreement is huge. The Bible says in Amos 3, 3, that can two walk together unless they're what? Agreed. Like, can two walk together unless they're agreed? He can. There has to be that agreement. And listen, agreement doesn't mean that you're going to feel the same exact way about things. It doesn't mean that you're going to feel exactly the same about what you're trying to agree on, but it means you come to a point where you're able to agree on something. Kind of like if we were to go eat after this, right? Each and every single one of us would have something different that they want. 
and we would all have to say, Sadie, whatever you want, you're the boss, right? You have earned that badge. Yeah. You have earned that badge of honor. <laughs> but it's true, right? We would all have different things. I would maybe want like Chinese. Andrew would maybe want Mexican. Amber would maybe want vegan. Joey would maybe, well, I don't know, what do you feel like eating, Joey? Teriyaki. Teriyaki, there we go, let's go. Right? <laughs> we would all have different things, but what would happen? At some point, we would come to a consensus and say, hey, we maybe all are, feel like eating different things, but we're going to agree on this type of food. But it's the same thing with life. It's a simple illustration, but it illustrates a great point. But to agree on something, you don't have to have the same feelings about it as that other person. You just have to be able to come to a place where you're able to be in mutual agreement. We're able to be okay. And maybe sometimes that may mean like what Barnabas should have done with Paul and said, okay, Paul, you know what? Your God has called you to lead. I'm going to yield and submit. And we're, we're, we'll leave John Mark at home for his trip. Man, sometimes, listen, agreeing, it's coming to a place where you're able to agree on something. Being able to be in agreement is important. Why? Because divisions are often caused by disagreements. But disagreements, listen, they don't have to be divisions. Now, there's many people that I disagree with on things. There's friends that I have that I disagree with on things. But at the end of the day, we can have fellowship. And there's certain, there's sometimes, and you have to really just look at it and say, okay, God, am I able to come to an agreement without compromising my convictions? That's what it is. And if you are, then you are. And if you're not, then sometimes there needs to be that separation. Sometimes there needs to be that split. But disagreements don't have to be divisions. Why? Because there are some disagreements between families. There are some disagreements between friends. There are some disagreements between people in ministry that last years. And a disagreement happens and you don't speak to that person for years. You see their, you see their kids' birthdays on Facebook and what happens? You don't respond. Man, there's not there's nothing better than seeing a division. Another thing that causes division is what we would call sectarianism. And it's when people kind of tribe up, they get tribal. In the church at Corinth, Paul had started the church at Corinth. Apollos came in after he was another speaker. He came in after, and Apollos began to also work on the church. He spent some time there. Peter came at one point and spent some time there. And the Bible says that when you look at it, the Bible says that the Corinthian church, they became very divided. They became very sectarianism. Some were like, well, no, I'm of Paul. And some were saying, no, I'm of Apollos. And some were saying, no, I'm of Peter. They were all divided. They were tribal. Listen, sectarianism can divide a church like no other. And Paul's reminding them, he's saying, look, he's saying, when you guys are coming together as a church, you're all divided. And there's disagreements. There's different groups of people. 
And the church is not to be a place where that is to happen. Now, the church shouldn't be a place where all the rich people hang out and all the poor people hang out. Where this race only hangs out with this race and that race only hangs out with that race. The church should be a place where we can all come together. Now, the church should be a place where everyone can come together. So he talks there in verse in in chapter in uh, verse eighteen. He says divisions, and then in verse twenty, notice what he says. He says, "Therefore, when you come together, he says in one place, he says it is not to eat the Lord's supper, for in eating each one takes his own supper ahead of time, ahead of the others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. That's a crazy that's a crazy thought, huh?" How crazy the, the, the church was at that time. And then verse 22, what? He says, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? He says, I do not praise you. So what's he saying there? In that church, they would have, in the early church, they would have these things called love feasts. It was like a big dinner, kind of like a potluck, a church potluck. And what they would do is they would all come together once a week and each person would bring a food almost identical to a potluck. They would have a church potluck. But what would happen is, is in that culture, you still have slavery. Slavery still existed. And while the Bible says, and that's why the Bible was so revolutionary at that time. Because the Bible came in and the Bible eliminated all that. The Bible says what? The Bible says that when you're in Christ, there's no slave, there's no free, there's no richer, but it's just one in Christ. Well, what happened is, is because they would have these big giant church potlucks, you would have some slaves who would come and they had maybe wouldn't eat a good meal throughout the whole week. And so they would come and maybe they weren't able to bring as much, but you had these other people that would come to that potluck and they were more wealthy. And so what they would do is they would eat all, they would literally kind of eat up all the food between themselves and they would leave nothing for, for anybody else. And Paul's saying, he's like, dude, he's like, he's like, what are you guys doing? He's like, that's not an example of walking in love. It's an example of what? Selfishness. And so Paul's saying, he's saying, he's saying, look, you guys, you, you guys are, are acting crazy. He says, he says, I don't praise you in this. He says, that's not good. Now, at those love feasts, usually what they would do is they would have a time of communion, which is something that we still do today, right? One of the things that the early church would do, they would do four things. They would fellowship, they would pray, they would go through teaching, and then they would do what? They would have communion, they would break bread. And notice what he says. This is Paul in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he, in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. <coughs> For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
So he talks about communion, and communion is so important, right? And in communion, we do what? We partake of the cup, we partake of the bread. Jesus said to do it in remembrance of him. And I love it because I, I, I wrote things down, uh, what William Barclay said about this. He said this. He said, for those who take it, he's talking about communion, take, for those who take it into their hands and upon their lips with faith and love, it is a means not only of memory, but of living contact with Jesus Christ. To an unbeliever, it would be nothing. But to all who love Christ, it is a way to do But communion is more than just some ritual that we do at church. Communion is more than just some random thing that we do on Sundays once a month. Communion is so much more than that. Communion is what? It's contact with Christ. It's remembering his death on the cross. It's remembering what he does. And so what does he say here? He says that when you do communion, verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, what's he talking about? He's saying when you take communion, he's saying you don't want to take communion in an unworthy manner. And what does it mean to take communion in an unworthy manner? Listen, unworthy, it doesn't mean an unworthy life. I want you to think about that. And there's sometimes you can think, and some people will come to church and they won't take communion, and the reason why is they thought, well, I've been living like a heathen, I've been living crazy, so I can't take communion. But the message of communion is what? What's the message of communion? It's what? It's the death of Christ. That's the message of communion. And like what he says there, he says, as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, <coughs> he says, we proclaim the Lord's death until we come. Man, the message of communion is what? When we take communion, what we're doing, we're preaching the message. And we're preaching the message of the cross. And what did Jesus do when he died? If he died in our place, it's that substitutionary atonement. Man, he died. The Bible says that his blood was shed for what? For the remission of our sins. That he died so that our sins can be put away. That our sins can be washed away. That he died so that we can have forgiveness of sins. He died in our place. See, the message of communion is the death of Christ. And because it was by his blood that was spilled that we can have forgiveness of sins and remembering that new covenant. Listen, we're all unworthy to take communion. But that's why we need to take communion. Because it's a reminder of what Christ did for us. And it's an opportunity to say, you know what, God, I have screwed up, but I'm going to take communion and I want to be right with you. And communion, the message of communion is the death of Christ what that means for us. And he says, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body. He says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. 
But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So what's he talking about there? He's saying, hey, he's saying when you partake it in an unworthy manner, and again, unworthy, it doesn't mean, and I'm living like crazy, I can't take communion. What it means to take it in an unworthy manner is it means to take it irreverently. Not taking it seriously. I think of someone who would take communion as just more of a ritual, as more of a routine, and not really looking at it as for what it is, which is what? It's a, it's a message of the death of Christ. And it's a reminder that by his death, that our sins were forgiven. So he says, whoever eats this bread in an unworthy manner is guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And he says, but let each man examine himself. And that's why it's important. Listen, when we take communion, which we do once a month, and when we take communion, it's important to examine ourselves and see, listen, how am I living? And what it doesn't mean to do, what self-examination here is not. Self-examination here is not. And before I take communion, I'm going to look and say, well, what sin did I commit this week? Man, did I cuss this person out? Did I think a bad thought? And I got to make sure I get rid of all those things before I take communion. That's not what it's doing. Communion is not confession. Right? In the Catholic tradition, you have what? You have confession of sin. And they go and they do what? They go to the priest. They confess each and everything that they did. And then what do they do? The priest says, go, go in peace. Do however many how married and you're good. That's not communion. Communion is not confession. This is what we're talking about. Communion is connecting with Christ. It's remembering his death. And then by his death, that we're forgiven of our sins through faith in him. And it's being able to say, listen, by taking this serious, Man, do I want that forgiveness? Doesn't matter how I how I've been living up until this point, but right now at this moment, do I want that forgiveness of my time? And you get it right with God, and then you take communion. And he says, What? He says, For this reason many are sick and weak among you. Listen, communion has power. I think a lot of times we can forget that, and that's why he says, he says, You don't want to take it. In an unworthy manner. You don't want to take communion and not take it serious. You don't want to take communion and take it irreverently. Why? Because it has power. And he's looking at him and he's saying, hey, he's saying a lot of you guys are sick. A lot of you are weak. He says many sleep. He's not talking about people who just sleep in. He's talking about people who have died. That was a phrase they would use for, uh, they would say when someone fell asleep in that time, they would say it was literally a phrase they used for someone dying. So he's saying there, he's saying what? He's saying a lot of people, there's a lot of little sicknesses, illnesses, things. And it's a reminder that God does have the power to heal. That God does have the power to heal. And then he says this and he leaves it off with this. He says, for if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. He leaves it off with this. He says, if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. What does that mean? 
I think many times we can be very good at judging other people. We can be very good at saying, well, this person's this for sure. I know this for sure that this person is this. And the truth is, is instead of looking at others, I think it's so important to look at what? To look at ourselves. To look at ourselves and to say what? To look at ourselves and to say, hey, how am I living before God? And am I living right before God? It's like what we talked about. Self-examination is not looking and saying, well, this is every little thing I've done this week that I need to get rid of. Self-examination is looking and saying, hey, like, do I want to be right with God or do I not? That's what it is. Am I messing up? Yeah, do I want to be right with God or do I not? That's what it is.